0: God fills us with um, many delights. God loves to put, uh, to bring delight to us. He does that through creation. You know, something inspiring and delightful about about scanning the vista of a snow-capped mountain range. Or being out at night and, and seeing the expanse of the stars and the dark, moonless, clear November evening. God brings delight to our lives through through relationships and people. You know, we, we we find delight in family and in friends and and of course who doesn't find delight in, in holding a newborn baby? We find delight in, in the things that we're able to accomplish and in things that we're able to learn and Find delight in in attacking a, a seemingly unsolvable problem and and finding a solution. And there's something inspiring about those aha moments. Really, even even possessions can can bring delight to us. It's only natural then that we that we might have a, within us a desire for things that bring delight to us. We, we like those things and we, we look for those things and we yearn for those things. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There is nothing inherently wrong at all in desiring things that bring delight to us. But our desires have a tendency to turn into obsessions. You know, the same word that, that's used... In the book of Genesis, to describe the the beautiful and pleasant trees in the Garden of Eden is used by God in forbidding the act of coveting in the last of the Ten Commandments. When he says to his people, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant, ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's taking a desire and, and turning it, twisting it, becoming obsessed with it. That becomes the problem for us. To desire something in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that we covet it. But covetousness is taking that natural good desire and turning it until it's gone wrong. In one sense, it is desiring more of what you already have. But in another sense, it isn't just limited to wanting what you already have. It's it's wanting the very thing that other people have. Possessing what they possess. Even taking it away from them. So that you possess it and they do not. King George and the Ducky is a Veggie Tales uh, story. It's the it's Veggie Tales adaptation of David and Bathsheba. Uh, Larry the Cucumber stars as King George, and uh, Bob the Tomato plays the role of his faithful servant, Louis. King George is really not all that interested in the stuff of the kingdom. He's not impressed by expanding his kingdom or by castles or power or treasures. Those things really don't have a lot of appeal for him. But the one thing that King George loves is to bathe with his rubber ducky. And and in the course of the the episode, he, he sings an ode to his rubber ducky, which you might imagine is called, I Love My Duck." And there's a scene where he's out on the veranda of the palace and he's singing the praises of his duck and how much he loves his little rubber ducky. And then something happens, as you can see in this brief scene. Hey, what's that? Corey. beautiful. I want it. What? The house? No, the ducky. Oh, but you already have a ducky. What do you think? That I shouldn't have whatever I want? Well, I must have it, I must get it, you must go and get it for me. If you want me to be happy, then you'll show me you adore me. Don't rest another minute. If I could just jog your memory, you already have quite a few duckies. Those are yesterday's duckies. Huh? Wh- wh- these are all perfectly good duckies. Why, most of your loyal subjects would love to have even one ducky this night. I don't like these, I don't need these, I don't want these affection for those duckies isn't getting any stronger. To say I can't have what I want, you couldn't be more runner. Don't ask me to explain, there will be pain if you don't go and get that dark. Our conversation is over. Did you say wronger? What? I don't know. Perhaps. It's more wrong, not more wronger. we It had to rhyme. Don't question a king's grammar. Now go and get that duck. But King George, we can't. Go and get that duck. And you can see, rooted in that animation, the core of covetousness, self-centeredness, selfishness, self-absorption. We believe we have whatever we want, even if it means taking it from someone else. Covetousness exposes that deeply rooted tendency in human beings to find the focus of our lives in ourselves, to trust ourselves, to love ourselves more than we love other people. And it's an attitude of the heart that controls us and enslaves us and brings its dominion over us. But because it's internal, it so often sneaks up on us, and it happens in virtually every area of life. And we tend to think of, of of coveting in in terms of possessions, and that's certainly a problem. I want what that person has, but it's not limited to that. There's a scene in the in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean where uh, Captain Jack Sparrow and, and Will Turner, who is a blacksmith, are on their way to rescue Elizabeth, Will's love. And, and as they are making their way on the ship to the shore, they're talking about what they're going to do and, and things. And, and uh, Will is, is talking badly about pirates and you know the, the terrible way to live and he shouldn't do that. And, and Jack Sparrow says to him, you know, for someone who such, has such a bleak outlook on pirates, you're well on your way to becoming one. You sprung a man from jail. You commandeered a ship. You're sailing a buccaneer crew. All of a sudden, Will's eyes widen as he sees all kinds of gold coins just under the surface of the water. The captain says, and you're becoming obsessed with treasure, too. They make their way into shore. Will steps off the boat, and he says, that's not true. I'm not obsessed with treasure. The captain says, not all treasure is silver and gold mate. Right. And he's right. It's often about possessions, but it's certainly not limited to possessions. Not, we aren't all tempted with the same intensity about the same things, which I think is why the commandment covers such a wide range of issues. God warns about coveting in our deepest relationships and, and in our accomplishments and, in our know, possessions. All of these things stuff that we tend to think bring us value and worth in this world the ugliness of coveting is that we tend to treat people as objects to possess rather than as persons to love it reveals a twisted perspective of, of those who are supposedly closest to us if they don't make me look successful if they don't make me look more appealing if they don't make me feel better about myself then I'll find someone else who will and on the other hand, coveting also views objects and things as highest value to be worshipped. In ancient Israel, an Israelite might say, I need uh, that person's sheep or, or oxen or, or house or spouse or servant. Because those things are going to make me feel valuable and influential. Today we might say, I need that house or that car or that position or that toy. Whether that toy is a collection of DVDs or a Wii or PlayStation or Xbox or whatever. If I have those things, people will treat me with honor and respect. And so something intended as a gift, something that's intended to be a blessing, becomes an object to be worshipped. And people who are intended to be loved are instead used until their usefulness runs out. You can see why why covetousness is such a dangerous sin. But you know, it's so difficult to stop because it's so ingrained into our culture. Someone was talking about seeing a, a PBS documentary where they called our sickness affluenza. And the person writing about it said, "You know, I, I'm always suspicious of the new words that, that people uh, come up with. I just prefer the old word, greed. Is this not sin? it's sickness? The problem is that in the world in which we live, we learn to call greed ambition, or providing for my family, or getting ahead. We learn to call greed working for a better life, or simply pleasure. And we're constantly bombarding those shoes. You need that dress." You look great if you drive around in that car. How embarrassing if you wear those clothes. You can't be completely fulfilled until you have this thing or or until you have a relationship with that person. Someone has said it's almost un-American to not covet because our lust for more is what keeps the economy going and cash flowing and people in their jobs. It's not a coincidence that advertisers and marketers and vendors refer to us most of the time as consumers. They want us to think of ourselves primarily as people who consume so that we'll want more and more. And when you think of people primarily as those who consume, there's a certain element of dehumanization that always goes along with that. You would assume that when we became wealthy we would stop coveting, but it doesn't typically work that way. Covetousness is not cured by getting. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we have or what we need or what we don't have because it's a state of mind, a state of heart. It's about the condition of our heart and the passion of our heart and the direction of our hearts. And it's going to be a problem because it's in our hearts whether we have little or a lot whether we're rich or poor whether we have multiple degrees or none at all because it's about self-centeredness and we're driven by self-centeredness we tend to find ourselves doing things that later on are unimaginable to us someone said that covetousness is the sin of sins because it opens the door to so many other sins. And you can make the argument that all the other nine commandments probably often begin with coveting. It leads us to make decisions that are dishonest and unjust. I want that so I'll steal from them to get it. I want that so I might take their life to get it. I want that so I'll tell lies to make sure I get it. I want that so I don't have time for my parents. I want that and God can be forth in my life. But I want this. We get so wrapped up in what we want. We miss what's true and we hurt people in terrible ways. It's like the mother who was jealous that her daughter didn't make it on the cheerleading squad. So she put out a contract on another girl on the the team so her daughter can get on. You read those stories and you scratch your head and think, what in the world? I suspect covetousness was at the heart of the events that took place on on January 6th of 1994 at the figure skating championships in Detroit. There was a practice session that day, and as she came off the ice, Nancy Kerrigan was attacked by an assailant with a a pipe. And he injured her enough that she wasn't able to compete, and the next person in line got on the team. Tanya Harding made it. Created a great media frenzy, and eventually... Honey Harding was banished from figure skating events. And I don't know all the details of what went on, but I'm certain that her desire for what Nancy Kerrigan had didn't begin by thinking, how can I hurt her? I want what she wants, what she has. So the prophet declares that they covet fields and seize them. And houses, and they take them, and they defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. And we might not put a contract out on someone, and we might not physically attack someone, but we might share some gossip. It might make us look better and other people worse. We might send out a malicious email. We might allow an, uh, a false innuendo to go unchecked. Because something inside of us says, that'll make them look bad and me better. There is a nearsightedness that's always connected to coveting. We're blind to, to what's right around us. It distorts all of our values and our sense of truth. Because all we can see and think about is us. And that means that the solution is to change our focus. To turn our focus from us to God. So that we can see straight and see clearly. Covetousness believes that what we have isn't enough. That that no matter what God has given us, it's just not quite enough. And so we're looking for more. But once we turn our attention to God all of a sudden our eyes are open and we see how much God has given us and how much we have for which to be grateful. And Instead of saying, God, you haven't been fair to me. I deserve a nicer husband or a nicer wife or a more lucrative position or a bigger house or a higher status. God, you shortchanged me. You owe me something better than what you've given me. And instead all of a sudden our eyes are open and we say, Lord, you have given me more than I could have ever deserved. Thank you. It's impossible to be wrapped up in coveting and still be genuinely grateful. You can't do it. When we give thanks, it turns our attention away from what we don't have that others have to all that we do have. And it disentangles us from the web of covetousness. No wonder the Bible speaks so much about giving thanks to God. No wonder God continually reminds Israel that, that the one who gives them these commandments is the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That he's on their side. He's good. He's loving. And he wants what's best for them and for us. And when you understand that, You don't need what others have. When you think of what you have compared to the rest of the world, you're filled with gratitude. And you would think that the more we got, the more grateful we'd be, but often it doesn't work like that. And we aren't grateful because we aren't content with what we have. And contentment is the natural progression of gratitude. They're always companions with one another. If you're grateful, you can be content. You'll never be content if you aren't grateful. And contentment is not passive. It's not the absence of ambition. It's not laziness. It's a state of mind and heart. You can be poor and be content. and You can be rich and be content. It's an attitude of the heart about the way we see things. I read about a man who years ago, very devout believer, went to New York City. The first time he'd ever been there, he wanted to go see the city. Spent the whole day going around the city. Had a great time. Saw all the sights, all the glamour, everything about New York City that people dream about. And that night he went back to his hotel, walked into his room, knelt down by his bed, and he said, Lord, I want to thank you that I've not seen a single thing today that I want. There's contentment in that. And contentment, like covetousness, is not just about possessions. It's also about people. We're called to be content with what God does for us and what God does for others. Your neighbors is a key phrase in this thing. It's repeated a number of times and it's implied even more times. It's key, but the problem is that our neighbor tends to be, more often than not, our competitor instead of our neighbor. I wonder if Paul's words aren't most significant for us. That we ought to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We tend to be pretty good about weeping with one another. I think we find it a little more difficult to celebrate other people's joys when we aren't having the same joys. We need to celebrate one another's accomplishments. I sometimes wonder if that's not a spiritual discipline for us. To make a conscious effort to do something to celebrate with people when something good happens to them. There's something about that that that, that turns in us our attention away from ourselves and to others and to God. And that's always a good thing. The Apostle Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I I can get along whether I'm in a humble circumstance or in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and being hungry. Having abundance and suffering need. I'm content because my focus is on God. And it's not a coincidence that the very next sentence Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The moment we bring Christ into things, we know that he's going to ask one thing of us, to surrender ourselves, to come to him, and to die to self. The kingdom of God, the way of God, keeps bringing us back to the perspective of death. Instead of being controlled by our selfish desires, we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Instead of wanting more, we're content with and grateful for all that God has given to us. And our yearning is no longer focused on us, but on God. There was a preacher years ago who said that uh, the meaning of coveting is to set set the heart on. Very literally, it means to pant after. And the minute I read that, I thought of the words of the psalmist. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. That's going to be the solution to the temptation to covet. And when we gather for worship on Sunday, it's sort of like a dress rehearsal for eternity. We worship God, and all of our attention is focused on Him as it will be in eternity. And we declare with our brothers and sisters that we're turning our backs on the covetousness of the world and in our own hearts. And we're bending our will. We're dying to self toward God. For He alone brings contentment. And in this act, we come face to face with God's continuous call to come and die. To surrender ourselves. It's it's what we do in the Eucharist. In the great thanksgiving. In this moment together. We're all gathering up our individual thank yous. And join them together in one great declaration of thanksgiving. Grateful to God for all that he has done. To break the power of sin in this world. And in our lives. And in that thanksgiving is contentment. But let's never forget that the Eucharist, the great Thanksgiving, is born out of the ultimate act of dying. This event is victory through defeat. It's celebration through sorrow. It's life through death. And the only way to be content, to be grateful, to be fulfilled, is to die to self. So that God can make us fully alive. One thing about covetousness is that it does reveal the missing piece in our lives. And we keep attempting to fill that missing piece that the the ancients talked about as the God-shaped void. We try to fill it with all kinds of stuff in this world, and it doesn't work because it doesn't fit. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle, and you get to the end, and there's a piece missing, and you can't find it. And so you go to the shelf, and you open the box of another puzzle, and you take out a piece, and you try to put it in. And you twist it and you turn it and you push on it and you hammer at it. Try to get that piece to fit. It's not going to fit because it's not the right piece. And we try all the stuff of this world. Thinking if I just had a little bit more. If I had that. If I had that. If I, if I had a relationship with that person. If I had something more than I have now. That would be the answer. All the while the answer is always Christ. And our problem is not that we're full of desire. Our problem is that we long for that which is unfulfilling. And the ultimate irony is that If you look for anything in this world, whether it's wealth or prosperity or accomplishments or fame or success, look for anything in this world to provide happiness and fulfillment. Not only do you find that it doesn't fulfill you, but also you don't really enjoy the things that you already have. As we become entangled in the selfish web of covetousness. One of my favorite preachers is Fred Craddock, and he loves to tell stories. One of his stories he begins and he talks about going about greyhound races. So he's never been to the greyhound track, but he's watched them on TV. Those, those big old dogs that, that run around the track, chasing that mechanical rabbit, he's going around and around, chasing that rabbit. He said, uh, "What ha- with those dogs, he's discovered that uh, after they've kind of." Run themselves out. The owner will put an ad in the paper. It says if you want a dog, you come get it. It's yours. And if nobody claims it, then we'll have to put it down. He said he has a niece lives in Arizona. She can't stand those ads, and it's break her heart. And so every time she sees one, she goes and she gets another dog. A house full of dogs. Greyhounds. He said he was in a home not too long ago, and and they had one of those old greyhound dogs. Dog was. Relax, lying on the floor in the den. A little child, about a toddler, pulling on his tail. Another one, a little bit older, his head on the stomach. Dog just sound asleep, just enjoying himself. He said, I, uh, I said to the dog, Are you still racing? The dog said, No, I gave that up. Really? He said, Well, you missed the glitter and the excitement of the track? No, no, not at all. Did you get too old? No, I guess still still got some race in me. Well, did you were you not that good? Hog said, Are you kidding? I, I made over a million dollars for my own. So, well well didn't they treat you well? So you kidding? They treated us like royalty when we were racing. Well, well, what happened? Did you get injured? He said, No, no, nothing like that what happened why aren't you racing anymore the dog said well I quit and you quit yeah, that's what I said I quit but why'd you quit he said I discovered that what I was chasing really wasn't a rabbit it's not real and I quit I said, all that running and running and running and running. And what I was chasing, it wasn't real. What are you chasing? Is it more? Or is it Christ? Is it real? Or is it something that will pass away? What are you chasing? Father, forgive us for the times when it's so wrapped up in ourselves that we chase after stuff that isn't real. Help us today to see that we need you. Make us grateful for what we have. Make us content with what you give us. Not in a negative way, but in a way filled with joy. Father, break the bonds, enslavement, coveting. Father, we pray your grace and blessing upon these elements of which we partake today. Pour out your spirit upon them, on the bread and the cup, that as we receive them, we will know the blessing of your presence and the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might remember what you've done for us and be thankful and be content. In the name of Christ Jesus.